Well, thank you, Molly. Thanks, thanks for doing that for them. And I pray those study Bibles will be good tools for you guys. I hope you all will enjoy those and use those. The adults know my love for the ESV study Bible, and I'm super excited. In the last few years, they published an ESV student study Bible for teenagers, a bunch of character profiles, helps us understand what's going on in God's Word. And so I hope that will be a great tool for you guys. I'm sure you've all have heard by now, but just want to make sure you're all aware that our dear brother Carmen passed away Friday night at 10.40 p.m. His family was by his side and around him. And that, I know you feel the mix of emotions that we all feel in this, sad for our loss, but yet rejoicing for him and his homecoming, to, to realize that for all these months he's been fighting cancer, wanting to be with God's people singing God's praises, and this morning he's seeing Jesus face-to-face singing his praises. Just how could, we couldn't wish him back from that, but we can, our hearts are sad for us. And so please be remembering the Falcioni family during this time as they're grieving, as soon as service arrangements are made, we will let you know. Just know it's probably going to be a, a few weeks out is what it's looking like before we'll have it because they want it to be a celebration of life, not a grieving time. So we'll do our grieving now and then we'll gather together. Not here. We need a bigger auditorium than what we have here for the city to come together to celebrate the life and what God did in and through Carmen. So we will keep you posted once those arrangements are made. But if you haven't heard anything by Tuesday, don't panic. You haven't missed anything, okay? We will make sure you are, you are in the loop on that. Well, this morning, church family, we're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of John. We'll be in John chapter 5, but like I, I want to do what we do most weeks, and that's to remind us of the big picture of why we're reading the Gospel of John, why it was even written. But challenged by what we saw a few weeks ago with the kids, the third and fourth graders reciting from memory all of Romans chapter 12, we're going to try to do part of this one from memory as a church family this morning. So Rob, you can put that up on the screen for us. We're going to have for you some of the verse, but without um, some of the words filled in, Okay. So, John 20, 31, you see if you're going to do it with me. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the... And that by believing, you may have life in his name. Okay. A little extra challenge for the morning there for us, right? John 20, 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's the Christ, he's the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to start working on that in the weeks to come, and see if we can't get it with no blanks, so they're a completely blank screen, and see if we as a church family can't have John 20, 31 committed to memory here in the next few weeks. Well, John chapter 5, we're actually in our third week in John chapter 5. I just want to remind us, even though we've divided into three weeks, it's really one passage, all one story that really all goes together. There's just a lot of content to this, and so we've done it over three different weeks. Just to remind us of what's going on here, we saw two Sundays ago, the beginning of John chapter 5, that Jesus is going to some Jewish feast. We don't know which feast, which celebration it was, but he was going up to the temple. And he went a way that most people did not go. He particularly went to a place where many invalids, many lame people, would lay by a pool hoping for healing. And he goes through the crowds there, and it's the Sabbath day, it's a Sunday, and he picks out one man in particular and very publicly heals him in front of all people. We're, we're seeing that he has the power, he has authority that can only come from God. Well, the Jewish leaders don't like this, and so they start kind of blasting Jesus because he healed someone on the Sunday, or sorry, on Sunday, on a Saturday. It's the Sabbath, and he broke their Sabbath laws on that, and they're really upset. And basically, Jesus just says, you know, you're upset about me doing this, but my father is working, and I am working. And he claims to be God and makes him even more upset. So what we saw last week was he then responds to them. It's what we call a discourse, a conversation, where he's sharing with them more of who he is. And if they thought they were upset about what he said, my father is working up until now and I am working also, that was mild compared to what he told them, what we saw last week, where he is showing us that he has the authority, that God the Father has given him the authority to give life 
and to judge. And where we saw in the middle of John 5 last week that Jesus is making it very, very clear that God the Father has given to him, God the Son, the authority, the right to give life as he wills and to judge as he wills. And what we saw at the end last week is that means each one of us is receiving from Jesus right now either eternal life or judgment. When we, when we think about eternal life and judgment, we usually think future tense. And yes, there is that part of it. But if you saw last week with us that when he says, I've come to give eternal life, it's present tense. We're either experiencing eternal life from Jesus starting now or we're already under his judgment because of our sin. And so the question for us, I hope you thought about this week, is have you been experiencing eternal life this week? Friends, I think about Carmen and his story. He's been fighting cancer. He's been in pain, but the joy of the Lord has been with him. He has been experiencing eternal life in the midst of his suffering. And friends, now he's gained it in his fullness. Eternal life doesn't just happen in the future. It starts now. Have you this past week, in the midst of all this going on, been experiencing eternal life already this week? Well, this morning we're picking back up in John chapter 5, verse 19. And we're carrying on the same discourse. Again, these, these chapter divisions and verse divisions and section divisions were not part of the original scripture. They were added to help us. And so remember, this is all one flow of thought. This is continuing on Jesus' flow of thought from last week. And so I said verse 19. Sorry, we're starting in verse 30. You're like, wait, we did that last week. We're starting in verse 30 today of John chapter 5, where we left off last week on that. And this is going to continue what he said last time, but he's going to be answering the question for particularly, how can we know that Jesus really does have the authority to give life and to judge? Again, last week we saw that he's, he's claiming that the Father's given him this right. How can we know that he has the right, the authority to give life and to judge? Now, think for a minute about modern courtroom situations. Someone accuses you of something, and you go in a courtroom setting. The judge looks at you and says, what happened? You said, well, you tell your side story, and the judge goes, okay, great, I believe you. Case dismissed, have a good day. Well, no, nothing is validated on the testimony of just one person. In a courtroom setting, witnesses come in. There's, you know, the person gives their testimony, then another witness is called in, then another witness is called in. The more witnesses you have, the more you can get to what the truth really particularly is. In a sense, that's what Jesus is going to do for us today with our passage. He's going to be bringing in witnesses for us so that we can answer the question of how can we really know that Jesus does have the authority to give life and to judge. And so as I read the text for us this morning in John chapter 5, verse 30, I want you to be listening for what are the witnesses that Jesus calls forth as he's making his case for how he has the authority to give life and to judge what we saw last week, to pronounce over people they're either experiencing eternal life now or they're already under judgment now. How does he have that right? Listen in John 5 for what witnesses, in a sense, he calls forth in this particular passage. So we'll be starting in John chapter 5, verse 30. Can I ask you to stand, please, in honor of the reading of the Word of God as we read through the rest of John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 30. This is Jesus speaking. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me is himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for how your word brings life to us. I pray this day, Spirit of God, that you would come, that you would open our eyes to the truth of what the Lord Jesus was sharing to them and to us this day, and that it might transform us into a better understanding what it means to know you and to experience eternal life even now. And I ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So as we begin today, I want to ask a question that we'll seek to answer. And then at the end, I want to give you a main point, I think, of application from this text. So we've got kind of a big question for us to consider and a, and a point of application as well. The big question is, how can we know that Jesus really does have the authority to give life and to judge? How can we know? Well, Jesus is going to call forth several witnesses here in a sense. Now, let me say at the outset, Jesus is not calling these witnesses here because he's some insecure dude who's trying to make himself feel better about himself. He's doing this for them and for us, not for himself. He knows who he is and he knows why he came to do what he did. Look at verse 30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Think about when you were a young child, and your parents had taught you how to do something, and you were doing it, and your parents walk by and they smile and kind of nod, and because you know you've done what they've asked you to do. That sense of security you feel, the sense of approval you feel when your parents have nodded and smiled at you. How about in your job now? You and your boss are working a project together, and he or she walks by your office and kind of gives you a thumbs up for a job well done. You feel good because you know that, wow, I'm doing what the person in the authority over me has asked me to do. How much more so with Jesus and the Father? How much more so that Jesus is simply doing what God the Father has sent him, God the Son, to do? Back verse 30 says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, hear from who? Hear from the Father, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him, God the Father, who sent me. Last week we saw Jesus saying that he simply does the works he sees his father doing. Now he's saying I'm simply speaking the judgments that I hear my father speaking on this. And the result for Jesus is he is completely secure knowing he's doing what is right. He is simply doing the will of the father. So why witnesses? Not for him, not because he needs the witnesses, but he's doing it for the good of us and them. That's why he brings these witnesses on this. And he's going to give the witnesses in a way they would expect at the time, which explains verse 31, which may seem odd to us at first reading. Look at verse 31. Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. But wait, how does that fit? Jesus is God. Jesus is completely trustworthy. That's one of his attributes. We'll talk about on Wednesday nights here pretty soon. The trustworthiness of God. How can Jesus say, my testimony is not deemed true? Well, it's not saying he's not trustworthy. He's completely trustworthy. But he's simply answering them in what the Jewish law required. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, explains to us what was required at the time for the Jewish culture. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So in the culture at the time, anything you need to have a witness for, you need to prove. 
It wasn't accepted on just one person. Hey, I want to tell you, I did this. Well, great. Well, where are your witnesses? There had to be two or three other people to testify to what has happened. Same thing is true today. When you're buying your house and you're signing all those papers, you have to have witnesses around. If you don't have a witness around, you can't just sign something. That's why we still use notary public today. People have to go witness you signing documents and stamp them. Why? Because there has to be validity that other people have witnessed what you're doing, even more so in the culture at the time. And so when Jesus says, my testimony is not deemed true, has nothing to do with his trustworthiness. He's simply providing for them in the way they would expect witnesses to validate that he has the authority to give life and to judge. And he gives three specific witnesses. I hope you already kind of picked up on those as we were reading the text. The three witnesses he calls forth that he has the right to give life and to judge. The first one is John the Baptist. He starts right there with John the Baptist. Look at verse 34. He says, Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Again, Jesus does not need these witnesses. These are not for him. He's saying, I'm giving these to you so that you may be saved. He's directing them to something that they should be able to see to find the path of salvation. He starts with something very familiar with them, verse 33, one verse above it. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. They sent to for John already. If you go back to John chapter 1, which, mind you, was 13 weeks ago that we were talking about that, so that may be a little bit blurry in our thinking here. But in John chapter 1, 19, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am the Christ. I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? This is what Jesus is referencing here in John chapter 5, this time that the Jewish leaders sent a delegation to John the Baptist to figure out who John the Baptist was in all of this. They were already familiar with John the Baptist. They should have been hearing from him and realized that the Messiah was coming. And Jesus alludes to that in verse 35 here back in John chapter 5. Speaking of the witness of John the Baptist, he says in verse 35, He was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We saw that way back in John 1, 13 weeks ago, that John the Baptist never claimed to be the Christ. He always pointed people to the Christ. That's why Jesus describes him as a lamp. A lamp is not the light. The lamp is the picture that magnifies the light, that points the light outwards. And that's what John did here. He was a lamp that showed the true light of Christ. And so fascinating here because in verse 35, Jesus tells the Jewish leaders, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. They didn't reject John the Baptist first. They were somewhat eager and excited about it. If you go back to the great Jewish historian Josephus, he actually said that, that when John the Baptist was preaching, people's affections were stirred up to the highest degree by what they heard. And so Jesus points them back to the first witness that should have shown them that he had the authority to give life and to judge was what they'd already heard from John the Baptist. But Jesus doesn't stop there because that's not the greatest witness. There's a bigger witness that's coming. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So they should have figured out who Jesus was simply from John's testimony. But Jesus is saying there's a greater witness coming. The I here is emphatic. He's saying with great emphasis, I have a testimony even greater than what I'm just telling you about. And what is that testimony? It's the testimony of God the Father. The testimony of God the Father. That's the second witness, if you will. You have the witness of John the Baptist. Now you have the witness of God the Father himself. Look back at verse 32. It was already alluded to. Jesus says in verse 32, There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, this is not speaking of John the Baptist here. This is when Jesus is talking about he can do nothing on his own. Why is he able to do nothing on his own? Because there's another who bears witness about him. The witness Jesus needs, the witness that Jesus 
desires here is the fellowship with the Father, the oneness he has as Father, Son, Holy Spirit, his triune God here. And that is the ultimate truth for him, that God the Father bears witness. Now, how does he bear witness in a way that these other people should be able to see? Obviously, Jesus knows his relationship to the Father, but for those standing around watching, how will they see? Well, verse 36 and verse 37 tell us. So verse 36 first. May the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the Jewish leader should be able to look at Jesus' works and realize this isn't a mere man. This, is, this guy has authority here. If you, we think of miracles, probably the better word for them are signs. Because the point is not in the miracle in itself. The point is what the miracle is pointing to, a sign to something else to show us who Jesus really is. I mean, think back to Nicodemus. That wasn't quite as many weeks ago. I think that was like seven or eight weeks ago. But when we got to Nicodemus, he came to Jesus at night. John chapter 3, verse 2. And he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so these signs, these works Jesus points to, they should have shown them that Jesus had the authority to do these. They verify that the Father sent him. There's even more witness, and that's verse 37 of the Father of verifying what Jesus can do. Verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Well, what in the world does that mean? How is he directly borne witness to Jesus? Well, the rest of the verse kind of gives us some insight. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. Now, not everyone's in agreement on what this means. My understanding of this is that, and you can differ with me on this, but my interpretation is he's referring to the baptism of Jesus. When the voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. When the form of the spirit comes in the form of the dove and lands on him of this. This is simply saying to these Jewish leaders, no, you weren't there at the time, but you've heard about it here. The father has borne witness to who I am at my baptism. Though you didn't hear his voice, you did not see his form. There's lots of people around who have heard his voice and seen his form at the baptism there. And so what we're seeing so far is Jesus is calling to their attention. He has the authority to give life and to judge. John the Baptist was a witness to that. The Father was a witness to that, to that both directly and with works. But there is a third witness he's going to call. If you think about a courtroom scene, sometimes after you've had witness after witness after witness, there's a surprise witness at the very end that turns the case that you're not expecting. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing a third witness, and he's going to blow them away with this witness because it's, it's a surprise witness. It's one that the Jewish leaders are not at all expecting. And the third witness he's going to bring is the very word of God, the scriptures themselves. Look at what he does with this. He's going to take these very, this very document to which the people devoted themselves, and he's going to use that as a witness about what's going on. Look at verse 39. Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. He's saying basically, listen, all of the scriptures you have, again, think of the time period this is happening. This is, he's referring to all the old, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. He's saying all the scriptures, all the Old Testament is pointing to me. Friends, whether it's the law, the law is pointing to Jesus. The law is showing our inability to get to God on our own. The law is pointing out our ultimate need for someone to come fulfill the law perfectly. Whether it's the sacrifices, the sacrifices <coughs> were designed to show that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The sacrifices were showing that there has to be a blood offering to cover sins. Whether it's the prophecies of the Messiah coming, the Deliverer coming. Whether it's even the promises that one would crush the serpent's head and one would come who would be a blessing to all the nations. On and on it goes. Whether it's any of these things, the entirety of the whole Old Testament is pointing to Jesus coming. If they had eyes to see it, they should have seen it of who Jesus was. But they don't get it, so Jesus explains again. Look down in verse 
45 through 47. He says to them again, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you will believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So here's the unexpected twist for these Jewish leaders. Jesus points back to Moses. He's pointing back to the books of the Bible that Moses wrote. The first five books of the Old Testament. We call those the Pentateuch, Pentateuch 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Jesus points back to those five books and says, These all bear witness to me. These all point to me. Obviously, we know that there's a lot of direct prophecies that lead to it. But ultimately, what I just mentioned, the law points to our inability. These books show our inadequacy to think that we can read that and think, Great, I can do that and I can get to God. No, this shows our own sin, our own guilt. It exposes us. That's why the book of Romans can say all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so Jesus brings to bear here in this case, if you will, the witness of John the Baptist, the witness of the Father, and the witness of the Scriptures. But don't miss this. This is incredibly important. This is not Jesus on trial here. This is the Jewish leaders on trial. These are not witnesses for Jesus trying to somehow prove himself. These are witnesses Jesus is bringing against them. They don't believe. They're blind. They've rejected him. So he's bringing, listen, John the Baptist should have shown you. You don't believe. You're guilty. Look, God the Father has shown through my works and through my baptism who I am. You should have believed. You don't believe. You're guilty. Look, the whole scripture is pointing to me. You should have believed. You don't. You're guilty. This is not Jesus on trial, friends. This is Jesus, the judge, showing he has the authority to give life and to judge. And here he's putting on trial the Jewish leaders right here. And they're coming up guilty. And friends, that leads to a very sobering warning for us and a sobering point of application for us in this text. And that is we can know the word of God without knowing the God of the word. We can know the word of God without knowing the God of the word. Friends, we can be religious. We can be in church every day the doors are open. We can study the Bible devotionally, religiously, and faithfully. We can do all this stuff and not know the God who this book is revealing to us in this. These Jewish leaders were blind to who Jesus was, even though, look back in verse 39. These people who were so blind to who he was, verse 39, Jesus says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. This word search, you search the scriptures, means to do something with keen scrutiny, to do something with serious study. He's saying you scrutinize over the details of the scriptures. You seriously study the message of the scriptures. You're trying to track down the meaning of the scriptures. You revere the word of God. They diligently study it. They search for eternal life, and yet they had no clue who Jesus really was. Look at verse 38. Sobering. He says in verse 38, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Friends, they were studying his word diligently, and yet they did not have his word in them because they refused to believe in Jesus. He repeats that in verse 40. He says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. To refuse is the idea of an act of the will. They're, they're intentionally stopping themselves from following after Jesus. So all the evidence is there that he's God. He has the authority to give life and judge. They're stopping and they're refusing to follow after him. They knew the word of God well, but they refused to follow the God that's revealed in that word. Friends, they worked out their own religious practice. They had all these traditions of man that they would add to. They had this very religious ritualistic life And they try to fit God in that box. But friends, God will not be fit into a box that we create for him. God is who God is. And he's not going to fit into our laws, our rules, and how we want him to work. God is God. He does not conform 
to us. These people were very pious. They were very holy. They were very righteous. They had very upright moral standing in the society. And yet they were very, very lost. We can know the Word of God without knowing the God of the Word. We can live very holy, righteous lives in the pagan days we live in. We can be very religious. We can be a church. We can serve in the leadership teams in the church. We can do whatever around this church and miss totally the God who is revealed in the pages of Scripture. What are the results for the Jewish leaders or for us? And as I was reading this text, this becomes very convicting of what happens for these Jewish leaders, but also what happens to us. We get really busy doing religious church stuff. And we miss the God of the word who we should be seeking after. Look, there's, there's three results in the life of these Jewish leaders. There can be results in our life if the same thing happens to us. What is the result of knowing the word of God without knowing the God of the word? Number one, they totally lack God's love in them. They lack God's love in them. Look at verse 42. He says, I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Friends, what an indictment from the lips of Jesus. And look at verse 42 again. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Friends, the love of God within them means the experience of God's love for them. That means they are totally missing out on eternal life. They do not have within their hearts peace. They do not have within their hearts joy. They do not have in their hearts the security that comes from knowing God. We talked about last week how Jesus came to give life, and that starts now. Eternal life starts with the moment we trust Christ. They're not experiencing that. They don't have the love of God in their lives, though they're very religious because they do not know the, the, the God who's revealed in the word of God. They don't understand. We talked about it Wednesday night in the attributes of God. It's one of my favorite texts in Zephaniah chapter 3. God rejoices over you with singing. They've never experienced the fact that God was singing over them. The, the joy that we as children of God have. They totally missed out on that. They lacked God's love for them. But there's a second consequence in their life as well. Because they do not know the, word, the God of the word. Even though they know all this religious stuff. The second consequence is they're easily deceived. They're easily deceived. Look at verse 43. He said, I've come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in, my, uh, in his own name, you will receive him. Specifically here in this context, is referring to the false messiahs. What you'll see in Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, when they begin to go after others who claim to be the coming messiah and they get blinded to that. And you look at Jewish history and from about 80, 70 to 80, 130 or so, you have multitudes of people standing up saying, I'm the messiah. And Jewish leaders, religious leaders following after them thinking this is finally the messiah. They're easily deceived. But friends, isn't that true of us as well? If we are not, do not have the love of God in our hearts, if we do not have the stability that comes from knowing that we are loved by God, how easily we're swayed by whatever false things get thrown around us as well. But then number three, the third consequence in their life, they lack God's love in them, they're easy to see, but number three, they're bound to needing the approval of man. They're bound to needing the approval of man. They become people pleasers. Look at verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Friends, if our identity is not rooted in experiencing the love of God in our life and who we are in Christ, we will spend our days trying to find our identity in what other people think about us. And at the root of so much conflict, so much problems in relationships, whether it's marriage relationships, whether it's friendship relationships, you know, sibling relationships, whatever it is, at the root of a lot of that is we're people pleasers in our heart, in our core. We put our identity in what everyone else thinks about us instead of what God thinks about us. And friends, that, that makes us bound to our sin, bound to living for other people and all this in terms of their controlling us. Friends, we're either seeking the glory of God or we're seeking the glory of self and finding our identity in what other people think of us. And that's true of the Jewish leaders here at the time. They lack God's love. They did not know the God behind the word of God. 
And so look at verse 44 again. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? They've missed who, how our identity is supposed to be and who we are in God, and they totally were bound to what everyone else thought. And so, friends, that becomes a sobering warning for us. I don't want to discourage us from studying the Word of God diligently. That's what we're called to do. I don't want to discourage us from spending time together in church family because that's what we're called to do. We're made for community in the body of Christ. But friends, we must go back to the core of this. Are we doing those things out of an overflow of a love for Jesus and thankfulness for what he's done for us? Or are we doing those things to somehow try to gain his approval? Because if we're trying to do those things to gain his approval, we're in the exact same boat that those Jewish leaders were in. We were doing things and we're totally missing the God of the word that we should be seeking on that. So friends, with that in mind, I want to ask you, are you one who has so experienced God's love, so experiencing eternal life right now, that you know the peace of God in your heart? You know that who he says you are. He, you experience Zephaniah 3 of him singing over you. Therefore, you're not bound to the winds of everyone around you. Are you stable in that? Or are you one like these Jewish leaders are busy, 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 busy trying to do things to gain God's approval and miss God in the process? Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the truth you spoke to the Jewish leaders at this time. Thank you for your kindness to us, recording in the pages of Holy Scripture that we might have it as well. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you have shown yourself to be God. You're showing us that you are the Christ, the Son of God. You're showing us that you have the authority to give life and to judge. You're showing us that that you call us to believe. You call us to come to you. Lord, I pray this day that you would let us marvel at who you are. You would let us marvel at your greatness, marvel at your majesty, marvel at how big you are. But God, I pray we would also have just a a sobering warning as well. God, we are not to create a God out of our own imagination. You don't fit into our boxes and our paradigms. You are God and you do what you want to do. God, I pray you would deliver us from ever getting so busy doing things for you that we miss you in the process. Would you give me grace? Would you give grace to these precious brothers and sisters in the Gateway Church family, Lord, that we would seek after you because we want to know you for you. Because, God, we want to abide in you because we want to delight in your presence because you are worthy of our worship and praise and adoration. God, I pray everything else from the study of scriptures to our prayers to our service to our evangelism to the way we live in community would all be an overflow of all those things, not as doing those things out of guilt, out of duty, out of just some type of mere discipline. God, would you guard our hearts from those things? But I pray for all of us this week that you would stir our hearts and affections to so see a glimpse of your glory. Lord, we want to know you for you. And God, I pray that you would give us grace that would never be said of any one of us here in the Gateway family that we knew the word of God, but we did not know the God of the word. God, let us be people who long for you as you've revealed yourself to us to know you, to worship you, to serve you because you are worthy. Have your way in our midst, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing as we close?